good morning, and welcome back to the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Wolt. On this podcast, I interview the coffee professionals of the West Coast, and each week we share a Coffee Smarter episode. Except for this week. From the very beginning of this show, Chris O'Brien, the founder of Coffee Cycle, has been our resident Coffee Smarter expert. And through all of those Coffee Smarter episodes, we've kept tabs on what he's doing and what coffee means to him. But we've never really gone in-depth together and done an interview with him the way that we do with all of the other great roasters and coffee professionals who've appeared on the show. Today, we rectify that. And I have to be honest, it wasn't intentional. You may have noticed that the COVID-19 pandemic hasn't gone quietly into that good night just yet. Even virtually recorded podcasts are not immune to the effects. And a COVID-related cancellation opened up a space in this week's calendar. I share that only to give credit to and to say thank you to Chris for stepping in to fill the void on such short notice. I don't normally have a lot of background on the Roast West Coast guests. I like to keep it that way so that I'm learning along with you when we do the shows. But Chris is a little bit different. We've known each other for five or six, maybe even seven years now. We met on a bicycle ride that I was hosting and became friends without coffee having anything to do with it. A few years later, I was chafing from a missed entrepreneurial opportunity involving coffee. Coffee was something I knew absolutely nothing about. And even though I had already missed that opportunity, it really peeved me off that I couldn't do it because of that. So I asked Chris how much he would charge me to give me some coffee education. Coincidentally, he was opening his cafe and he needed some help. We came up with a trade. He would teach me as his first employee, a guinea pig really and I would help him in his new shop both as a barista and with developing some of his marketing and shop processes. I spent a full year there working part-time in the morning before going to my other job, and Chris and I spent a lot of time talking about coffee and just about everything else, so I know Chris. But despite that, I still learned quite a bit about him in this interview, and because we tend to keep blathering on when we catch up, this interview spanned almost two hours, So I've broken it into two parts. In part one, which you'll hear today, we talk about Chris's coffee background and what it took to get to the point where he opened Coffee Cycle. In part two, which will drop on Thursday morning, instead of a Coffee Smarter episode, we'll get more into where Coffee Cycle is now, why he recently launched the Coffee Cycle roasting program, and what he's learned since then. If you head to roastwestcoast.com and subscribe to the podcast newsletter, you're going to get that show sent to you right in your email inbox. And if you take a moment to follow at Coffee Cycle Roasting and at Roast West Coast on Instagram, you will be rewarded with seven years of good cups of coffee in. Oh, what's that? Oh, really? Okay, so legal is saying that I cannot promise you seven years of good coffee, but I can promise that I'll really appreciate the follow. I'm sure Chris will too, so thank you in advance. At this point, I'm assuming you've filled your mug with coffee, or you've pulled yourself an espresso, or you've had someone else pull you an espresso, or you stopped by your favorite local coffee roaster and picked up a peppermint mocha latte, because it is time for this week's Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, an interview with Chris O'Brien, founder and head roaster at Coffee Cycle Roasting. I was going to treat this just like I would treat an interview with anyone else, like not a coffee smarter. This is just like talking about coffee cycle and you and, and your your life. And I did a lot of research. Oh, God. <laughs> I've been doing f- five years of research on you. Oh, God. In order to ask these questions. So I would say, Chris O'Brien, welcome to Roast West Coast. Not coffee smarter, just Roast West Coast the show. Wow. I uh, I feel so special. This is this is a this is a new and different experience for me. Well, you know, we've had you've been on the show like I don't know twenty times as a coffee smarter expert, and re- I realized that I've never actually had you on the show as a just a local coffee personality who owns a coffee shop and now a coffee roastery. And I'm sure you may have mentioned parts, bits, and pieces of your history on the show in the past, but. Today, I thought we could talk a little bit more seriously about it. And in particular, 
Uh, before we get into anything crazy, I wanted to ask you about your first experience with coffee and that thing that made you think, yeah, this is interesting. This is something I'm into. Was there a tipping point or an experience that you remember that that had that moment for you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a couple that stand out, but nothing, you know, well, so <clears throat> oldest one I can think of is when I was a kid, I had a birthday party, you know, I, I was probably less than 10. And, you know, there's this girl that I'd grown up with named Cameron, and she came to my birthday party, and I had requested a specific cake. And I remember that she was very confused and horrified, and she said to my mother, what eight-year-old wants a mocha cake for his birthday? <laughs> so I don't know if it was actually eight or whatever, but um, but yeah, I guess, I guess there was something with coffee from a pretty, pretty, pretty long time ago. But as far as like that first kind of real connection to it. I took a year off at college and I worked for this little tea house for a while, which was really fun, cute and cool. And it had a really great community around it. The owner had made all the furniture and cups and plates and everything. And really interesting, interesting little spot. But then I left there and I, I got a job at this coffee roastery in Cleveland, Ohio called Phoenix Coffee. And so I was 19. I was just kind of bouncing from jobs, taking a year off, just not really sure what to do with myself. And there were two guys that I was working with one day at Phoenix in like my first week there. And I can't remember their names, but I remember I went downstairs to get something from storage. And as I was coming up, I overheard them talking about the different coffees that were going to be on tap that week. And that coffee roastery had a Hawaii, they had two Hawaii coffees that they would serve from time to time. It was sort of like, wasn't quite third wave coffee. It was like kind of like pushing from second wave to third wave almost. And um, and the Kona that we served next to Jamaica Blue Mountain was very expensive, you know, and we never brewed that um, or very rarely brewed that. But we also had a Hawaii Kauai. And I remember these two guys talking about how, ooh, the Kauai is going to be on tap on Friday oh, I'm stoked. I'm going to come in maybe on my day off and come try it. And you know what? I actually prefer the Kauai to the Kona because um, we had this French press service that we would do there. And so you could actually try the, the really expensive ones. And I just kind of had this moment of like, wait, why the heck do they care? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I'm just 19 working for whatever, whatever money I can get. I'm like, smoking cigarettes outside the back back door you know and just uh you know kind of kind of figuring out life a lot but I, I just remember kind of realizing wait there's something to this where these guys actually care about this and what what's going on here like can I can I buy into this more can I can I figure this out more and I, I guess if I had to start anywhere that's probably where it started so you took a year off of college uh, I've known you a long time I didn't actually know you went to college uh, at any point was there a a moment where you went to school or when you were kind of still starting out in your coffee career where you, you weren't quite committed and you thought there could be some sort of alternate timeline? Like maybe Chris O'Brien could be working right now as a mechanic or a salesman or an ukulele player. Was there, obviously you've gone into a career in coffee, but was there a moment where maybe that wasn't going to be the case? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think it's, these days, it's, it's pretty common for people to have no idea, or maybe always it has been, have no idea what they want to do with themselves. Um, you know, when I first went to college, I thought I was going to be in computer science. Um, after I took the year off, I thought maybe business or writing. I, I really, really bounced all over. Um, but in addition to getting into coffee the way I'm in it now and, and the way that, that kind of first seed planted, you know, in a lot of ways, coffee jobs, which is basically, you know, pretty much the main jobs I've held over the years. I've had a, I've had a couple outside of coffee, but not that many. But, but coffee jobs were the only ones that really kept my attention or engaged me enough. You know, I, I'm pretty strong ADD. I love to do 20 things at once and not do any one of them great. <laughs> <laughs> And I think coffee suits me for that. I think it was really good for my self-discipline, getting me up and moving every day and kind of, 
you know, even just the uh, the low wage aspect of it and the the scramble, you know, and I need that motivation. I need need to be I need to have the fire lit under me. You know, I'm I'm always the guy that didn't finish the project until the last minute, even for the projects that the everyone would swear couldn't be done at the last minute. I would find a way to do it at the last minute. So I think that desperation that, uh, oh, I need to get up at five tomorrow morning and go to work or else I won't eat, <laughs> you know, like, like this is like essential. And then once you're there having, okay, talk to customer, talk to coworker, do this thing with one hand while I'm doing a thing with another hand. Oh, and I've got that timer running in the back room. So I need to, you know, it just really suits my ADD brain. There's a, a high that comes with that multitasking in hospitality too. I, oh, I know yeah. that feeling where you're behind the bar and you're serving four customers at once. You're making eye contact with the person to let them know that's coming in the door. You're going to get to them. You're shouting at the kitchen. You're doing whatever you're doing. <laughs> shouting in a nice way. I love the kitchen. They're the, they're our, our <laughs> heroes. But there's kind of this, when it's all clicking, all of that stress that comes with that in those hard moments and dealing with people and dealing with things that are constantly going wrong. There's kind of this, this nothing like this feeling of like that. It's like being in a flow state when you're riding your bicycle, which is something that you and I both love to do. Yes. There's this moment where you stop thinking and you're just in that moment so perfectly and it's all working out. And at the end of the, at the end of it, you're exhausted. Yes. <laughs> There's this like intrinsic reward and, I went into uh, bartending and alcohol because the money was better than than in coffee. But uh, the customers that, you know, are you, worse. Customers are worse. Yep. And you, <laughs> uh, customers are also great, everyone. Uh, but they they can also be worse. You know, at twelve forty five after a couple of pitchers and crappy beer. I tried bartending once, and that was that was it. <laughs> was it for you? No, the money was better. The customers were worse. Couldn't do it. <laughs> Well, I've also worked at a sunglass hut, so I would say either way, I came out ahead because I ended up in hospitality. After that kind of first thought, you start working at coffee, you have that moment at the Phoenix Coffee Roasters, you um, end up working in a Starbucks. I think a lot of people work at a Starbucks. It's part of their journey. I believe you were a manager, if I'm not mistaken. There's plenty of attitude um, that craft coffee gives towards Starbucks. I'm wondering, as somebody who did work there and who then went on to work for kind of acclaimed Bird Rock in their heyday and now having your own successful coffee roastery, what is it that Starbucks does well? And, you know, what is it that you brought with that into your journey as you kind of kept on going from them? Or what on the other side of things do you think, oh, you know, know what, this is something I can do better when I run my own shop someday? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love that line of thinking because I, I really have talked before with people about how maligned Starbucks gets by the specialty coffee community and you know there, there's 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 a lot to malign there for sure um yeah I would say this isn't like an advertisement for Starbucks but it is something <laughs> that is common among a yeah. lot of the people that I talked to that they had a job at Starbucks and they thought they got into coffee that way it gave them that that in yeah and then they went off to do their own thing yeah, well, it's it's funny because, you know, we're not supposed to talk about this, Ryan. You don't mention to a specialty <laughs> coffee person that they work in, at Starbucks. You know, that's like that's like the the hidden secret. It's the skeleton in the closet. That's the uh, you know the don't men bring it up at Thanksgiving dinner, you know, type of thing. This isn't live, but I'm not editing it. I'm gonna. Play it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is true that there are a lot of a lot of us that are in specialty coffee that have had some some roots at Starbucks. You know, and I talked about desperation and coffee jobs in general, and uh, and desperation was definitely what led me to get a job at Starbucks. I did not want it. I was, you know, I did not want to work big corporate, but I also didn't know what the heck else to do. I had just moved to California, or I just moved to San Diego, and I was I was trying to, you know, figure out how to make ends meet. And so I was applying to a bunch of different places, and I got the job there, and. You know, after working there, I think it was on my second day, the person wearing the black coffee master apron turned to me and asked me a question about coffee because they knew I knew the answer and like that they didn't know, you know, and, and it was just from some of my education and specialty coffees. So can you can you just briefly, what do you mean by that? There's like a set, like a color coded apron system. Yeah. So Starbucks has um 
a program or had a program called the Coffee Master Program that lets you wear a black apron. And, um, and nobody likes those bright green aprons. They make you look like a little corporate puppet, you know? So the black apron at least has some timeless class to it. And a little little bit of bragging rights. And over the years, you know, I have some acquaintances and friends that, that still work for Starbucks or have worked for them recently. The program over the length of Starbucks has been activated and deactivated and changed and modified a lot. So there's no one single thing that I could say, you know, is what the coffee master for Starbucks is or was because it, it was a bunch of different things over, over the years, but basically they kind of had in different forms, um, an education track, uh, that you could do that would give you the right, the, the right to wear this apron. And you kind of had to have approval, I think from your manager or whatever to, to pursue this. When I did the program, it culminated in you create a coffee tasting uh, and pairing, and you present that to both your store manager and your district manager. And so you had to kind of host it. And, you know, if you look at specialty coffee now, there's there's barista competitions, you know, world barista championships and national barista championships, regionals, all that stuff. It's It was sort of similar to that. There's a presentation aspect to it, pairing and tasting. So, and that's kind of a cool thing to think about just because since we do love to malign Starbucks so much in specialty coffee, you know, to remember that Starbucks has its roots as one of the first, if not the first, real specialty coffee. And that, you know, we talk about third wave versus second wave. Well, when Starbucks was started, there wasn't a third wave. They, they Second wave was cool and new and, and, and big and, and it's awesome that that we have that and we couldn't have third wave without second wave. And so, so, you know, I think that there's a lot of relics of Starbucks early accomplishments in specialty coffee and in growing coffee as a specialty experience. And so you can see that with things like the coffee master program that's come on and disappeared and come on and disappeared. Sometimes that now I think you really see it with uh, the Starbucks reserve stores are stores that, that get special coffees that not everyone has. They had some special brewing equipment a, a while back that other shops didn't have. There was a new brewer that was uh, that was coming onto the market called the Clover um, years ago that was supposed to you know kind of revolutionize brewing. And Starbucks bought the rights to it completely and buried it. Nobody got to see it ever. Uh, and then they launched it like in like a handful of only these reserve stores and you could get a single cup brewed with the clover system, you know, that all these specialty coffee people are tearing out their hair because they, they never got to access it because it was this special, special thing. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot of quality that Starbucks has. There's a lot of those those relics of, of its history as an important stepping stone in how coffee has moved forward. Personally, what I have taken from Starbucks and changed up is, you know, you did mention that I was a manager. I technically only ever was an assistant manager, but I did have my own store for a while. I had my own store that I was the manager of while I was also still assistant manager of a shop in, in the mall, a very busy shop in the mall. And that was stretching me pretty thin. But the wonderful thing about that is that Starbucks put me through a bunch of management courses that they teach in in-house. And I think for anyone starting a business and, and, and you've worked in management and hospitality. So I've learned a lot of lessons from you, from your experience in hospitality management, but you know, from that experience that anybody who wants to just go into managing food service, that there's, a lot of pitfalls that you can find your way into. There's a lot of ways to screw it up. Uh, and the screwing it up can be really bad. I mean, legally it can be really bad, you know, um, but just, just, and just in terms of interpersonal relationships, it can be really bad. And so, you know, I think it was really great to have that education from Starbucks, you know, can I recall specifically anything from there? I, I don't even, I don't even know that I can, but, you know, I have another entrepreneur friend of mine who probably the number one thing I, I say about 
about starting a business is, uh, or advice is, is something I got from him, which is he said to trust the system and not the person. Um, he had a person kind of flake out on him. And so he said, you know, instead of trusting a talented individual to do something, you build a system and then a talented individual can thrive in it and excel in it. But still, if something happens to that person or if you need to move them on to something else and move someone else in, you have a system in place for them to get into. Starbucks builds systems. You know, they they are just systemized from start to finish. And in some places you lose something with that uh, because I think maybe they overdo it. But I think that that mentality has really served me well. And I think that that's probably the number one thing I've taken away from them is just a, a formality of system systemization. Yeah, that's something that I, I think is really important, uh, what you said about building around a system instead of a person. That's something I learned, I think, over the years because when that person isn't available, whether they're sick or they decide to go to another job or whatever, you're left scrambling. And so having a system in place, one thing that I... I tried to do was teach all of the employees that I had, you know, managers on down to just the brand new employee, everything that I was doing. I was very open about all of the work that I was doing and how that impacted them and why these decisions mattered day to day. And then with my managers in particular, I would always make sure that they could do my job if I wasn't there. And yeah. so that way, if I left or if they left or if somebody left, someone else could step in and maybe there'd be a drop off because some people are better at some things than others, sure. but there would be a step up in another area and worst case things wouldn't collapse, which you do, excuse me, you do see happening in hospitality in particular because it is such a particular skill set where you aren't just managing X's and O's. You're also managing emotions and experiences for people, which is a very tenuous there's a tenuous <laughs> balance between success and failure there you know it only takes one comment or one person or one bad review to to send things in a different direction so i should ask you uh you're drinking coffee what are you drinking over there i've got our um coffee cycles own columbia colibri blend from hacienda el obraje it's a blend of 73 percent gesha varietal mixed with 27% Maracatura varietal. It's from one of the highest elevation farms in Colombia. It is processed with an anaerobic soaking phase, followed by a fully washed process and air dried in the sun, uh, I think. Yeah, something like that. I don't know if the audience noticed it, but I noticed the tone you took on when you were letting me know that you were smarter than me about coffee. <laughs> Well, let's not pretend that the fact that this is our first actual podcast wasn't personal. All right. Let's not pretend that it wasn't. So after the Starbucks and after Ohio, you're in San Diego, you end up spending like seven years at uh, Bird Rock Coffee Roasters, the Bird Rock location. You're a barista under Chuck Patton. Bird Rock, for the record, is now owned by Jeff Taylor and Maritza Taylor, excuse me, Maritza Suarez Taylor, who we just interviewed on the show. How was that Bird Rock experience different from that previous corporate experience that you had been in? Yeah, I mean, it was very different. Uh, it was very different. No green aprons. No green aprons. No green aprons. There were some some little, I like the little half aprons. We got those little waiter half aprons sometimes if we wanted them. And then I ultimately found somewhere in the back room a pinstriped apron, which looked real sharp with the right attire. Not to sound like a total hipster, uh, but. <laughs> well, I, I know you as like kind of a, a very casual kind of hippie-esque vibe, but I could also see you. I could totally see you in like a, a vest with a bow tie, apron, uh, hair yeah, so pulled there, back. I could see that look for you. So there was a thing for a while. The last couple of years I worked at Bird Rock, every Sunday that I worked, I would wear a tie. Oh, I used to do that on Fridays. <laughs> yeah, and I probably should have done Fridays because I know some people assumed I am was a lot more religious than I am. I uh, <laughs> thought that was why I wore the tie on Sundays. <laughs> I just thought it was fun, and I just picked Sunday. <laughs> Wear your Sunday best, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was very different from Starbucks, but, you know, there was also a lot that was the same. When I hear people criticize Starbucks, you know, one of the things I like to remind them is that 
the community of baristas behind the counter at a Starbucks is pretty much the same as the community of baristas behind the counter at most shops. Now, I've worked at a lot of shops. I love all the different communities I've worked with. Um, I'm very proud of the coffee cycle community with both customers and employees. But there's, there's definitely a lot of similarity rather than a lot of difference in terms of just like a bunch of quirky, interesting folk that, you know, are willing to get up at odd hours to make people coffee and have this sort of performance high energy and get a kick out of it, you know, because if you don't get some kind of kick out of it, you'll just move on. And there is some turnover in most shops that I've worked at a fair bit and, you know, Starbucks and some of the other shops before coffee cycle, I'd say had some more, more turnover. Um, Bird Rock was, was, was pretty low turnover, but still, you know, some over seven years, it's kind of hard to think about what the turnover was monthly, you know, or yearly or whatever it is. Saw a lot of people come and go over seven years, but you know, those people are really what make, make a shop community interesting. And so I, I really loved the people that I was working with at Bird Rock. Um, but that did grow and evolve. I think evolve is really the word that I, I like to use when I think about my time at Bird Rock was that Bird Rock as a shop was constantly being forced to evolve. They had recently won Micro Roaster of the Year right before I got hired. And their store manager had suffered a tragic accident. And that was how I got hired, was they were suddenly in need of someone because of a incredibly tragic accident. And um, and so that was how I got the job there. But there was always sort of this reactive feeling to it, to a lot of what happened uh, over those those years. And I don't say that critically at all. I mean, it's 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 amazing what they did in those evolutions. But, you know, now that I have my own shop, I sort of see how and why that happened, where coming from Starbucks, you have this sort of structure and, okay, we're going to make a deliberate move to try to make this accomplished thing. And then we're going to accomplish that thing. And then we're going to make another deliberate move. Whereas Bird Rock, something would happen. We'd get an award or we'd decide to open a new store or change the roastery. And all of a sudden it would be the scramble to be, oh my gosh, how do we handle this? Okay, we can handle it, you know? <laughs> and uh, and that, that added a bit of character to it, I think, beyond just that community of quirky people. But it was also, you know, challenging in its own way as a workplace. That kind of sounds like what you said earlier, though, about needing your back against the wall and to some extent. And that does work. But if the per if the people at the top, if the management or the ownership or kind of operates on that, that'll trickle down to staff. If they aren't aware of everything that's going on, it can feel a little more chaotic as well. And I don't know that that was the experience there. I'm just thinking of my own. Yeah. You said something interesting a minute ago about the performance of being behind the counter. Is that something you've actively thought about how that being, you know, the person you are behind the counter might be different from the person you are in your real life or that aspect of performing that comes with hospitality? Is that something that you've thought about or are aware of, or is it just something that you can kind of set off the cuff? Oh, no, that's, that's definitely, definitely something I, I think about regularly. And that's very, very real for me specifically. And for a fair number of baristas that I've talked to, there's a funny quirk about a lot of shops in San Diego is that with the health department and the way they're licensed, a lot of shops in San Diego start or just exist like mine does, which is I have a, a license as a coffee cart that's in a permanent location. And uh, when I started at Bird Rock, it was also a coffee cart in a permanent location. And eventually the, the shop got remodeled and, um, and we were no longer on a cart and it was a permanent coffee shop and we had a new health permit and, uh, and it was sort of a different, different beast. But because of the construction of the cart, the cart was fairly tall, sort of like mine is at, at Coffee Cycle. And so behind the espresso bar, there was a wooden platform that you would stand on. And, you know, once a week you have to move the platform and clean underneath it. And we would call it the stage. And it really is like being on stage back there. You know, it's, it's really nice having these talks with you because, you know, you're a friend and 
you know, I've got the screen behind me and I'm in a room all alone and I'm just talking with a friend and it's easy, but I actually naturally am pretty introverted. You can give me a sci-fi or fantasy book and I'll be buried in my room for 16 hours without talking to anybody. And I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. So people who know me just through the coffee shop don't believe me when I tell them that they literally just don't believe me. They, they laugh at me and I'm like, no, I, I know myself, you know, like, but I really do, you know, and I, I do like it. I really do. It definitely scratches some sort of itch, but it's not how I naturally am. I, I get social anxiety. I don't like large gatherings of people and parties. And when I'm behind the counter at a cafe, I'm, firing off jokes. I'm talking to people six back in line. I'm, you know, having a good old time with my coworkers. You know, I, I just, it really is like being on stage and being in a performance. And, and, you know, I think I thought, I've thought about it for a while, you know, the, the stage aspect has come up a little bit, but I definitely, um, I definitely thought about it for a while. It's just sort of facets of my personality and different things that in myself that I was, I was, letting out or, you know, kind of using working a muscle that you don't work very often. But so someone I know in the industry mentioned to me the other day, the performative aspect. And I, I really liked that. And it really resonated with me. And I mean, I'm sure that's why I said it today. But given that whole stage aspect, and the fact that it has come up before that really is an element of it. And, you know, it also ties into um, something that comes up sometimes, which is a uh, you know, the server is not hitting on you. The waitress is not hitting on you. You know, the bartender is not flirting with you. A lot of service industry jobs are a performance. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that, you know, condensed idea of it, the, the bartender is not flirting with you, you know, that, that encompasses a lot of it where, where being in service industry is being a performer. And it's not just knowing the menu and doing your job. It's, it's putting on a show. I would add to that by saying something that I'm thinking about while you're talking is as a barista or a waiter, a uh, wait person or a bartender, you are also exposed to some extent, um, especially service staff who deliver to tables. I mean, you are out there literally physically exposed to people, strangers who are looking to have a personal experience and you have to repeat that and provide that over and over and over and over again. I mean, in a busy restaurant, you may engage with hundreds of people in a single day. And so you do develop some sort of performative, I don't want to say tricks, but some things that you can fall back on in terms of phrases that you use a lot. But I think what separates Coffee Cycle and all great coffee shops or restaurants is that even though that separation is there, there's also a sense that the interactions are still genuine. And I think people can sense that when, you know, when you go to the, the place where they're like, what do you want? Okay, here you go. See you later. Or when they're overly excessively obnoxious, like uh, what's that restaurant and office space, you know, with the suspenders <laughs> and the, the flair, yeah, you know, yeah. when it's the other way, you know, that's not real. This is just, a sh this is, none of this is real. But with a shop like yours, you can be behind the stage and performing. And to some extent, like behind the bar, behind the counter, that's like your protective barrier from the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're still, when you're asking people about their day, you still, you mean that. You, you do want to know in that moment. It's not, it's not a, a show in that perspect, uh, in that respect. But, but it, is a, it is a fine line and it's easy to fall one foot onto either side on any given day and being able to recalibrate as you go will show up in the reviews, so to speak. People, people customers know customers are smart. I think yeah. sometimes customers choose not to care, but I think most of, in most cases, their customers are aware. When I was a assistant manager at that, at that Starbucks in the mall, I had a coworker who, you know, most, most people at, at Starbucks or at most shops that I've worked at, they like to work the espresso machine and sort of kind of, everybody likes to just, get their hands dirty and making, making the espresso drinks. It's kind of fun. You got, you know, you got your kind of skill that you can show off or you, and sometimes, sometimes people just like to do it because they like to hide from customers a little bit because it can be overwhelming. 
but I had this one coworker and he loved to work the register and he liked to interact with people and you know, that's great. And I've, I've certainly worked with other people that, that really got more out of that than out of the, um, the hands-on part. Usually it's a mix of all of them, but he would always make really good tips. He would always make great tips and it confused me so much because but it was a good lesson for me because people would come up to his register and they'd say, Oh, Hey man, how's it going? And he'd go, Oh, not so good, man. I'm just, I'm just really struggling today. And I think we're so trained by this office space, restaurant flair vest idea of, Oh, Hey there, how you doing? Having a great day today? Yeah. So am I that I think, you know, it's really important to acknowledge that we are all, having bad days sometimes and we are all struggling in some ways all the time. And I talk about this with my coworkers when I'm doing trainings and I say, Hey, you know, like it's okay to say that, you know, if you're having a bad day, one thing, how can I support that as your manager? But also, you know, you don't have to pretend with people. And uh, and people really respond to it. They, they tipped him so well. He made so much tips at Starbucks. And like tips at Starbucks are terrible. They don't take credit card tips. So it's just cash tips. And nobody pays with cash anymore. It's like 20% of sales or something like that. 10% of sales. So, you know, the fact that he got that was, was really remarkable. Um, but, you know, at that store, I had this one habit that I like to do because I was a manager you know, a lot of the time I would be moving around behind the counter and it was so busy that we'd have, you know, four or five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people working at once. And I'd be walking around behind the counter and I'd see someone come up and nobody would engage them. And I'd be holding a box and I would love to just drop the box to the ground deliberately to talk to the customer. And it was sort of like a little bit over the top kind of, uh, you know, management technique. And I probably broke some stuff in those boxes occasionally. But nowadays at, at Coffee Cycle, we do something a little different where, you know, you're going to be in those lulls between customers talking to each other behind the counter and having conversations in your more immediate community of the coworkers that you spend five, six, seven, eight hours a day with. But instead of dropping a box and instead of just dropping my conversation with my coworker when someone comes in. You immediately, instead of having this one-on-one, we try to turn it so that you bring them into the conversation that you're already having. And, you know, it it's not as much of a performance at that point, you know, because you're already having an intimate conversation with someone who is, you know, an intimate friend. Like, we don't spend five, six, seven, eight hours a day with that many people that often our coworkers and, you know, romantic partners are pretty much the only ones that we really spend that much time with. And so that intimacy of being welcomed in to that intimate conversation really adds this, this genuine welcoming to people, you know, and, and we could be talking about whatever my, my coworkers cat or the crazy dream I had last night or the meal that I totally screwed up the night before. And you, you never know how that customer is going to respond because they might be in there just thinking, God, I just want a cup of coffee. But then all of a sudden they're like, Oh my gosh, I screwed up my baking the same way last week. Or my cat did the craziest thing. Or you had that same dream, you know, like you just never know what's going to happen with that. And so it really does take it from that performative aspect into a more genuine interaction. If somebody had the same dream that I had, I would be concerned for their mental welfare. I'm going to be honest with you. My dreams are way off the map. We've been talking a lot about your history, and we, as we tend to do, we go on and on and on together. <laughs> but I want, to, I want to talk about how you got to where you are now at Coffee Cycle Roasting. But after seven years of being a barista at Bird Rock and I don't know what, 10, 12 years as in the coffee industry, working for someone else, you decide to open your own coffee cart, which is Coffee Cycle. And it is a coffee shop that is literally on a bicycle. I know your original inspiration was to be rolling around on this bicycle. But what made you decide to leave uh, Bird Rock and then and do this, th- take on this challenge 
of of opening your own cart, which I know was not a quick process. Well, you know, I went to college. I took a year off college. I went back to college. I moved out to California. I got this job. I got this other job. I got this job. I moved down to San Diego, you know. I think we're always trying to better ourselves or try to, you know, accomplish something or try to find some sense of purpose. I think that's just like human nature. For me, I never really found it in really formal areas. I think I've always been a little bit entrepreneurial. You know, I've tried mostly what I've put my hand toward is, is like writing projects because I love to read so much. So I've, I've tried a couple writing projects over the years and, and really thought that something would come of them. But I always knew that I... Not always, but I, I've been pretty confident for a long time that I, I wanted to work for myself and be an entrepreneur. And coffee really makes the most sense because it's really the main job I've ever had and, and my main area of expertise. You know, I was working for Bird Rock and I ride my bike everywhere. I don't have a car. And I was closing up the shop one day with a couple coworkers. And it just so happened that they had all ridden their bikes to work that day too. I think it was just it was my friend Brock and my friend Charlie and I forget who else was there. But I live about a mile from Bird Rock. And so I said, hey, after we close at uh, at 6 and we're done by 6.30 or so, do you want to ride back to my house and have a beer before you guys head home? And they were both down. So we came back to my house and I own about four or five bikes at any given moment. And my roommate at the time owned about four or five bikes. And my coworkers had just rolled their bikes into the living room. So now there's 12-ish bikes in the living room. And we're all hanging out, drinking beer, and chatting about our job. Because we have such a great community there. We had um, really good connections with the people that came in. There were some favorites, you know. And so basically we're talking about some of our favorite aspects of working at Bird Rock and what was made it so special. And... We're talking about it in sort of the context of how we would like to have our own shop one day. I think it's it's a dream that comes across a lot of baristas' minds at some point. And I think it comes across a lot of people's minds. There's something just appealing about a cafe. You know, I, I, I used to hear a lot more about, you know, oh, yeah, I'd like to retire and own a bar. You know, but now I feel like I really hear people say, oh, I'd like to retire and own a coffee shop. And sneak preview, no, you don't. You don't want to do that. <laughs> you definitely don't want to do it if you retire. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not retirement. That's yeah. saying I've worked for 50 years and I want to work harder for less money. <laughs> yeah, I, it's 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 amazing to me how often I hear that. And I'm always like, no, no, you don't. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but, but we're all, you know, kind of tossing around this sort of dream. And one of them, and I really don't remember who it was, said flippantly, off the cuff, they said, uh, you should just build a coffee shop in the back of one of your bikes because we're surrounded by bikes. And I don't know why the idea kind of got in my head, but the next morning I woke up and I looked up bike trailers and I found the biggest, heaviest duty bike trailer I could find. I looked at its weight capacity. I had heard from another coworker of mine how he used to take an espresso machine to bike race events back in Ohio. Um, and he would take this lever pull espresso machine that he had converted to run on propane to these bike races. And they would drink espresso and beer while watching bike races. And I said, well, I've got to be able to find a espresso machine that I can convert to propane. And I've got to be able to put that espresso machine and the propane and the water and a fridge. And so I just sort of started drafting it in my head, you know, and I, I found this trailer and I started drawing out this design and I called a friend of mine who's a bike mechanic, who's a really good bike mechanic, had his own shop for you know, about 10 years or so. And I said, Hey, you know, like, so I started worrying about the weight and braking. I said, Hey, you know, can, can we rig up brakes on like a trailer of some sort? I'm just worried about going down a hill and like fishtailing or something. And he said, well, if you're putting a ton of weight behind your bike like that, you should just try to get some sort of rickshaw type um, tricycle sort of design uh, where the bike is put in front, but it's like all one thing. And I said, oh, like a pedicab? And he goes, yeah, exactly. So ultimately we bought an old pedicab frame and we we cut it down and narrowed it and lengthened it and reinforced it and... Um, that's how that's how we built the, the the coffee cycle. 
So I, I, I know you know this already about me, but I do tend to ramble in my stories and sometimes I'll lose track of where I was supposed to go. So right, right there, that was where I landed and lost track. So, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was uh, what made you, what inspired, you know, the original coffee cycle. And so how long did it take you to build the actual cart that eventually got approved by the health <laughs> department to serve coffee? Because I think your original idea was that you were going to ride your bike to different locations around the beach areas, right. say Pacific Beach, Bird Rock, you know, Crown right. Point. Right. But that got nixed, I think, pretty quickly from the health department. But how long did it take be- before, you know, you buy that trailer, you buy that first rickshaw, whatever, yep. to you are open for business? So I, th- I planned it out. I planned it out and I was pretty meticulous in my planning and my research and I planned it out and I said, okay, from the day I buy this thing, which was right around Christmas, you know, it's the end of the year, uh, from the day I buy this thing to the day I'm able to launch should be about six months. So I was very, very careful and meticulous, six months. It took three years. <laughs> so, <laughs> all, the, all that planning, um, it took three years from, from start to launch, uh, just about. Just about three years. I think it was like two years, nine months, two years, ten months, something like that. Um, basically three years. And you know, looking back on it, I can say that the second year I didn't get nearly as much done. I definitely um, fell into some depression and just you know, just life stuff kind of crept up. But it's hard to keep moving with a project that you think is going to take six months and then takes three years. But I'm also really stubborn, so it's hard to stop doing anything. I just moved very slowly. So, you know, I was very lucky and some friends helping me out with it as far as, you know, a place to work on it and materials and tools and expertise and um, people just doing things for me. But, you know, I, I, instead of getting down there once or twice or three times a week, I would get there once a month or once every twice a month, you know, it was, uh, it was definitely a lot less progress for certain periods of time, but yeah, overall three, three years. And then I did it on the side of the road for one year. And the license that I had only allowed me to operate in a single location. To clarify, you mean you you were open serving coffee on the side of the road. The cart was essentially yep. next to the bike path. Yep. Uh, not on like a nice residential <laughs> street either. No. You're on, the high, you're on a county highway. Yeah. So, you know, the shop where I got to build it, I had a friend who had, had was another entrepreneur with a different different business he um he's a tree trimmer he's an arborist and let's shout him out what's his name oh joey eaves at coastal tree care coastal tree care has been very successful it started with joey in just a little white pickup truck picking up jobs on craigslist and now he's the highest rated arborist um in san diego he's got a couple different large trucks and uh, I think he's got a crane and he's got, you know, office staff and he's just got incredible reviews of his service. He doesn't do any climbing anymore, really. Uh, He does some evaluations and estimates and he loves customers and he loves trees. So he loves learning about them. He's uh, gotten some really cutting edge accreditations with um, tree healthcare, um, which is amazing, but he got this shop to start growing his business out of. And it was kind of this industrial commercial area um, next to a bunch of surfboard shapers. And Joey's a big surfer too. So there's all these surfboard shapers, you know, these smells of epoxy resin and, you know, uh, and uh, all all other chemicals like that. There's an electrician next door, but he had this shop and it was a nice shop, you know, just basically a big empty concrete warehouse, but not, not very large. But it was too big for him when he first got it. And so he partnered with a friend of his, our friend Peter, who is an engineer, uh, works for solar, worked for solar, tur- solar turbines in San Diego here, kind of a big engineering company. And Peter is, I like to describe him as a jack of all trades, master of all trades. He can just do anything with a power tool. It's just, it's, it's humbling and frustrating because of how amazing he is, but he's also very kind and, and sweet and helpful and generous. And so Peter's tools were all in the shop that Peter and Joey split the shop. Peter kind of used it as a substitute for, you know, like a garage and a house. And it was just kind of his little man cave sort of. And so we had 
an area that was dedicated to coastal tree care and an area that was full of tools. And then the coffee cart kind of parked in there as it was under construction. And so over the years, we just kind of did a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And as the cart took shape and we started to test it out, and as I did more and more research with the health department, it looked like getting it licensed like a food truck. Honestly, after all my research, it was really hard to even understand how food trucks do what they do. Most of what I read seemed to say that if you wanted to set up a mobile food place, that you needed to set it up on private commercial property, which I was thinking was like like a like a parking lot for like a mini mall or something. I can't think of what other private commercial property you could park a food truck in. And obviously we see them parked on streets occasionally. So there's some something about the, the laws and rules there that I actually never managed to understand. But what it looked like to me was the best and easiest license to get was the single operating site mobile food facility, which is a lot of words all strung together. But basically it's like a coffee cart at a hospital. Yeah, it doesn't move. It yeah, just it sits in one place. Exactly. Yeah. So I got that license. And so that meant that I could only set up at one spot. And that worked for me because as the cart was taking shape, it clearly wasn't as capable of moving as far as I had hoped and thought it would be. I put this electric motor on it that was, you know, the highest powered electric motor possible. I had done all this stuff with the gearing of the bike to make it capable of towing these heavy loads. And I got these big old batteries for the electric motor. How heavy are we talking? Like the cart, the, the the cart, and remember, this cart is on the back of a bicycle for anyone listening. So, essentially, a tricycle with a big cart on the back. What's the weight that you're trying to pull with this electric motor and your legs? My best estimate for the weight of the coffee cycle in its original form, including rider weight, water weight, and milk weight, and all the equipment and steel and wood, and battery and motor, was about 1200 pounds and it might've even been more than that. I I totaled up a lot of numbers and I got to a thousand pounds. And then I just said, these estimates are too low. It's gotta be more. (laughs) (laughs) So 1200 is the number I've sort of been working with. And so, you know, I thought this thing would have a 30, 35 mile range, uh, including some Hills. And I was so, so wrong. We, we broke the motor twice during testing testing the brakes once and I forget what the other time was we warranted it both times and then on the very first day of business I used the motor to get out to basically from the the shop was in the back of this kind of very large parking lot area and it was maybe out to the parking out to the side of the road and back was maybe a quarter mile and that was what I, where the only place I could think of to set it up because I knew it couldn't make it much further. And so I, I motored it, you know, with my legs and the electric motor out to the side of the road, stopped out there, served some drinks for a day. At the end of the day, I rolled the gates closed and locked up and I turned on the motor and I went to turn around and the motor broke. <laughs> and that was the third and final time the motor broke on the coffee cycle because I, I never, never replaced it after that. So after that, it was just my legs moving me out there and I had done my grand launch. So I was committed. And so I just pedaled out there every day and luckily it was geared low enough that I could get out there. There was some slight Hills, but with 1200 pounds, the tiniest Hill. And when I say Hill, I'm thinking like, like, Roads are sort of curved for for drainage. You know, the center double yellow stripe in the middle is the highest peak, and then the edges and the you know go to the gutter so that water flows off. That is a big hill to the coffee cycle. Uh, it would almost stop me. My legs would just barely be able to push forward, and the cart would inch forward until it got to the top. And then, thank goodness, we put really good brakes on it. Because those those never never had a problem. We put really really good brakes on. <laughs> <laughs> I I can only relate because I I know on my first bicycle packing trip where I was camping and carrying all my gear, I started I started riding on flat ground and I hit a small hill, and I actually thought my bicycle was broken. I got off and like checked everything, thinking like <laughs> why am I not 
moving faster. And I was maybe carrying 40, 50 pounds all in with food <laughs> and everything. And I was like, there must be something wrong here. There's no way I could be moving this slowly. And turned out, no, it's just a little bit of extra weight makes a big difference when you're on yep. two wheels or three <laughs> in your case. So you're open on the side of the road. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, and I will vouch for it. You are a stubborn person. <laughs> you spend a year there. What keeps you going for that year? And what what is the decide? How long was it before you said, you know what, I need a, a real, I need a retail location. I need to find a place where people can find me. You know, what was the what was the reason why you said, you know what, I don't want to be outside on the side of the road anymore? I mean, I could think of a million reasons why I wouldn't want to. Uh, having run a business that was predicated on being out on the road, but uh, what was it for you? You know, the plan was always to open a retail location. The plan was always that. And plan A was, we didn't do plan A, by the way, sneak, sneak peek, <laughs> a little foreshadowing here. Plan A did not work out as it so often doesn't. Um, but plan A was to make enough money with my low overhead and side of the road business that I could invest that money into a build out of a real cafe. And that plan was really predicated upon me setting up in a high traffic area, you know, think close to the boardwalk and PB. I'm friends with the owners of Oscar's Mexican seafood, which has a location really close to the boardwalk. And we have a, a sort of a business relationship with us. They helped me kind of get my permitting set up and, um, Juan, the owner over at Oscars, is a, is a really, really great guy and great food, obviously. And so I was sort of planning on, because at the time they had, you know, breakfast service at that Oscars, but no coffee. And I thought, heck, I can pull up my coffee cart in front of here and sell a ton of coffee. It'll be a great mutually beneficial relationship. I don't have to have any food, but I'll have all these customers. And then, of course, the cart wasn't even capable of getting a tenth of the way there, <laughs> a hundredth of the way there, probably. Um, and there was nowhere to store it there. And and by the time I launched, they had actually redone their whole front area and launched a small coffee program. And yeah, it just didn't, didn't work out at all. So, you know, where I set up so close to my shop was, was never really part of the plan. It was just sort of, hey, can I make this work? And the consequences for it not working aren't that bad. I'll still have a fully functioning coffee cart. I can still try to figure out something else if this doesn't work. And so how long does it take to figure out whether it worked or not? And so it was about, you know, nine months in was my, was probably my last, last day, nine, 10 months in. It didn't make it quite a full year. And we had some successes and we were paying our bills, barely paying my bills. I don't know why I said our, we're paying my bills, but really barely. And there were some days out there that were brutally slow. And I mentioned before that I'm, I'm an introvert and I love to read. So I'd always bring a book with me out there. And when it was really hot, it would get really hot. And when it was cold, it would be freaking really cold because you're not moving at all. You're just waiting. I don't know how the, the hot dog carts in New York do it. I mean, gosh, if I think it's cold in San Diego, like those poor, poor, poor people. They're all hopped up on MSG from the hot dog. So it's, mm. they don't even notice it. That is some delicious, delicious MSG, <laughs> pure umami. And so sometimes I have a book on my Kindle and I had a book on my Kindle on a Thursday and I was already looking for places to relocate to. I was looking for a garage that I could park my cart in that would have water and electricity to do the, the maintenance on the, on the cart. Um, that was in a more populated area. I was thinking maybe I'd go around to, you know, residential houses and, you know, drop off a letter saying, are you interested in renting out your garage? You know, I was, I was thinking, how can I make this work? And there was a, the area that we're actually currently located in, in Pacific beach is actually exactly where I was looking. Um, it's on grand Avenue, not too close to the beach, but closer to a lot of the residential areas in crown, the crown point area of Pacific beach. And I was trying to, I looked at businesses along that road. I rode my bike up and down it real slowly Get all these different businesses that I could maybe talk to to say, hey, can I set up on your private commercial property out front? And then maybe I can find a garage nearby there, you know, that I can pedal to and park at night. And so I was looking in these areas and I hadn't found anything quite yet. And I was like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe we'll push it a little further, see how we do in another month or two, you know. 
when can I do this work since I'm already working six, seven days a week. And I hadn't found any like real winners. I had found two or three places that I thought I was maybe going to approach. There's a there's a Hare Krishna t- temple that I was thinking, hey, you've got a lot of sidewalk space. You know, you might let this thing set up out here, you know, help offset your rent. I don't know what, it, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but I got to work on a Thursday one day and Thursday was usually a pretty good day at the shop. And I had my book with me on my Kindle and it was a brutally slow day. It was brutal. I think I made $20 that day, maybe 18 to $22 is somewhere in there which is like four coffees, five coffees, you know, this is like nothing over a seven hour day outside. And I cracked open my Kindle and I was 94% of the way through my book. And I read very fast and I didn't have another book on there and I didn't have internet and I was screwed. I was, I was bored. I had nothing to do. And so I pulled out my phone and I opened up my commercial real estate app, LoopNet. And I, um, I started looking for places to rent. Uh, and I had done that before a couple times. And so I don't know how I had never seen this place because it had been available for rent for, I think, a year before I moved in. Coffee Cycles in what was a new building when we moved in. And we were the first commercial tenants in that building. It's mostly a residential, mostly a residential building with, with two commercial units in it. And it was right at Grand and Ingram. Tons of car traffic on those roads. There's tons of people that live around it. The median income is nice and high, so they can afford specialty fancy coffee. You know, I just, I just said, this is kind of perfect, and it's, it's small enough that I can maybe afford it. It was 450 square feet, which, from what I had calculated, was like pretty much perfect for me. And I just kept looking at it. The whole rest of the day, I, you know, I kept looking at other places and trying to find something, but I found nothing even close to as, you know, to me, perfect as what this spot was. And it's funny because I've had some people praise my location to the moon and other people tell me, what the heck were you thinking opening up a shop here in PV? Because it's not, it's not near a, month, a bunch of other commercial areas, uh, a bunch of other commercial spots. It's really more residential. And businesses do tend to thrive when they're by other businesses. But to me, a coffee shop's always been about community. And you can get community with other businesses for sure. But a community where people live is, is, is really special to me. And so, that's like I said, it was, it was perfect to me. And so I rode my bike really slowly uh, up to it on my way home. And, uh, and I peered through the windows, you know, of this place that I had found on, on LoopNet. And I could see the whole layout of what I wanted in the shop from there. I could see where I was going to park the bike, how I was going to modify it so that you wouldn't have a seat anymore, but you'd have a whole pour over bar. I could see the seating area bar in the corner. I could see where I'd put storage in the back. I mean, I could just see the whole shop and it was just this bare concrete room, you know, but I knew what it was going to be. Yeah. So was it one factor that really drove me away from that spot? No, I mean, it was, that spot was always sort of a, a desperation move and a, and a temporary measure to try to figure out what I could do. And then, you know, again, back against the wall, desperation, lighting a fire under my butt. I just had to make something happen. So that is part one of the interview with Chris. In part two, we'll delve more into the recent history of Coffee Cycle why Chris decided to launch the roasting side of the cafe, and what he's learned from that expansion so far. During today's show, Chris talked about Starbucks as being a big reason we transitioned from second-wave coffee into third-wave coffee. And I just want to remind you, very roughly, what those phases of coffee refer to. All the way back at the beginning, the first wave was our original commercial coffee in a can. Often super dark, roasted all to hell, bitter coffee which you found in the supermarket aisle. The second wave of coffee took everything a step further, with more of a focus on flavored drinks, think syrup added or flavored lattes. We were still dealing with more overly roasted supermarket quality coffee, but the beginning of a coffee community was developing, and we were recognizing that the origin of a coffee mattered. There was also a passion for the cafe experience, if not yet for the coffee itself. This is where Starbucks came into the picture, and then really helped push coffee into the third wave, which is where we've been for some time, with a focus on true coffee flavor notes, lighter roasts, latte art, transparency around roasting dates, and 
places of origin, and the proliferation of manual coffee brewing. It's been theorized on this show, most recently by Jeff Taylor, owner of Bird Rock Coffee Roasters, that we've transitioned out of, or are actually in the process of transitioning out of, the third wave of coffee into something completely new. Innovation in coffee is widespread, and the mass awareness of specialty or craft coffee is happening right now. You are a part of that just by listening to this show. It has the feel of a good old days problem, where you don't really know you're in the good old days until they're gone. Perhaps someday we'll look back at this time as the fourth wave, but we're going to have to wait to find out. That's it for today's show. We are coming up on the end of Season 3 of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, which seems completely crazy, but somehow time keeps flying by. Thanksgiving is already behind us, and the holiday season of giving is upon us. There is a lot going on in the world right now, and I'm a big believer in not buying stuff just to buy stuff. So if you're going to be doing some gift giving this year, I'm throwing my recommendation hat behind giving the gift of experiences and good coffee. You can double down on that by giving the gift of a coffee subscription, which is not only great for the person getting it, but it will likely support a small business coffee roaster, which is also good for the community. I'm biased, but this show's roast industry partners, like Moster Coffee, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Morea Coffee, and The Leap Coffee, are great places to start your search for a coffee subscription. You can find links to them on roastwestcoast.com. Zumbar Coffee and Tea, Cafe La Terre, First Light Whiskey and Camp Coffee Company will definitely have the stocking stuffers and the high-quality merchandise that you need to feel good about the gifts that you're giving. And I just need to shout out Cape Horn Coffee Importers for supporting the local coffee community as a whole. And if you just want to share the gift of a good podcast newsletter and support a local writer who's putting pretty much all of his subscription money back into this podcast or into his coffee mug, you can give the gift of a paid subscription to RoastWestCoast.com. This show will still always be free on your favorite podcast platforms like Apple or Spotify, but paid subscription to the newsletter on Substack makes such a huge difference in my ability to produce this show. And soon I'll be announcing some big expansion plans, making those subscriptions even more valuable to me and to you. Thank you for supporting or even considering to support and for tweeting at Netflix about your desire nay, your need for a Roast West Coast Coffee Smarter travel show. That's what I'm hoping to get for the holidays. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity to make it through the day. And please, always tip your baristas, and be sure to drink good coffee.